Husky fans. This is Max Cerullo, and you are listening to Yes, UConn, the podcast where we dive deep into some of the greatest UConn basketball games ever played. And, uh, you know, we got a really good episode here. Uh, Andrew Callahan joins the show today. Uh, Andrew is a former Daily Campus colleague of mine who now serves as the New England Patriots beat writer for the Boston Herald. Uh, he's been doing a great job with that. Um, you know, he and I have been fortunate enough to see uh, quite a bit of each other lately at Gillette Stadium. And uh, obviously, always great to talk some UConn basketball. So, uh, yeah, so today uh, we're going to be talking about the 2010 game uh, between UConn and Texas at Gamble Pavilion. And uh, this is a kind of a weird game where, you know, it takes place for during what was, you know, for the most part, a really bad year. Uh, but even, you know, 10 years later, it definitely still resonates with a lot of people. You know, everyone still remembers Stanley Robinson's huge alley-oop uh, dunk. You know, every everyone remembers the court storming. Everyone remembers beating the number one team in the country. And, you know, even though it turned out Texas wasn't as good as we all thought, you know, it definitely still stands out as one of the most memorable UConn games ever, even if it kind of was ultimately sort of one shining moment in an otherwise down year. So, Andrew, uh, you were telling me before we started how this is one of the few games you actually got to see as a fan since uh, you did so much stuff for WHUS. And for me, it's the opposite. I actually did not get to see this game and I did not get to watch it on TV when it happened live. So when I rewatched it, this was actually the first time I've ever actually watched the game in its entirety. And uh, yeah, the reason why is uh, actually a really funny story that I'll kind of tell in more depth. But uh, 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 kind of the Cliff Notes version is uh, I had a date. <laughs> oh, hey, I hope that was Christina. If not, we have to end right now. Oh, no, no, no. It, cer- it certainly was. So uh, it paid off in the long run. But man, oh, man. Um, so yeah, so just kind of just to, before we kind of tell our own stories as to kind of our own experiences. Um, yeah, so this game, uh, the 2010 season sucked. <laughs> just, um, you know, you're coming off a final four year, you've still got a lot of talent coming back, and the team just winds up, it's just bad. Like they finished the year 18 and 16, they go 7 and 11 in the Big East, they flame out of the NIT, and, um, you know, kind of out of the wreckage, like you, you have three freshmen leave the program. You know, they weren't really major contributors, but that all kind of led to that whole uh, academic issue that ends up costing them the uh, 2013 postseason. So, you know, that postseason ban was mainly because of this team. And uh, yeah, so just to have this game where it's like that moment where you just get so jacked up for because at this point, UConn's actually still doing okay. Like they lose three straight fairly recently, but you know, you, you get the chance to have the number one team in the country come in. And after this game, it did feel like UConn had a chance to really do something, didn't it? Yeah, it really did. And that was that was part of the fun of this was getting to know the backdrop again and what was what was the mindset going into this game. Because you mentioned you're coming off a of Final Four year. George Blaney was also the head coach of the game. That was something I had totally forgotten rewatching this where there's this element of everyone's hoping Jim Calhoun is okay because he's been told in doctor's orders stay home from some stress-related symptoms, of course, battled cancer numerous times. So this is a team that's terrible on the road. They've got more talent than the record showed, which had recently, as you mentioned, plummeted because they lost three in a row to Georgetown, Pitt, and Michigan. That's two bad Big East losses. And then against a Big Ten team, you thought you could win on the road. But they're unranked now after starting at number 12. Just beat St. John's, and okay, now you've got Texas. And Texas is number one, which is all well and good, except for that prior Monday... They had lost on the road to Kansas State for the first loss of the season. So it's a wounded number one, which in some ways is okay, we've got a shot, but also not exactly beating a number one that in two days you know is going to be outside of probably the top three. 
Um, so for me, what this game was about, not only just a ton of fun, because you mentioned most of the rest of the year, wasn't a whole lot of fun. It was it was kind of a last chance for this team to decide what it wanted to be, because before those three losses, we mentioned coming into you know those four games before this, they beat St. John's before that, Georgetown, Pitt, Michigan. They had, had close calls with Duke and Kentucky, two top ten teams. Duke goes on to win the national championship this year, and the loss to Cincinnati. So the talent was showing that they were at least hanging around, but they couldn't close it. And what did they need was, at least in my estimation, a lot more toughness and togetherness down the stretch, which obviously you saw against Texas. But it was what I thought of was what would the feeling have been about this team had they lost to Texas? And I think probably the same one we got to eventually, but this win bought some hope and it bought some possibility for what the rest of the season could be because by beating the number one team, they get back into the top – 25 and into the conversation is okay maybe this team isn't lost after losing so much talent from the final four team a year before yeah it's so funny just because like this team this game was really just a perfect example of what this team's potential was you know everything that happens especially in the second half they were nails in this game like they just like, they were so tough they were so athletic they could make shots they had depth they had more talent on that team than you remember and then you know, just for whatever reason, it never, ever really came together. And this was the only time that we ever really saw, like, oh, my God, like, this team could really be something. But in the end, they, they weren't. I mean, you know, the record was what it was. I mean, this was a bad, bad UConn, like a Big East version of a UConn basketball team. But even still, like, this game was this game was nuts. Like, the first five minutes of the game was just all alley-oops put back dunks, you know, steals, you know, big baskets in transition. Like this was some real big boy basketball. And it was like really fun just to watch the both teams kind of just go crazy at each other for, you know, however long the kind of the first burst lasted. And then the second half was just this incredible, like UConn was down most of the game and then they just flip it. Like they, you know, outscore them by 20 over like a seven minute stretch. And then the down the stretch that was, you know, Texas gave up. They didn't have any fight in the last five minutes. So it's so uh, it's so fun and so frustrating at the same time just to see that the, the way this team played. Yeah, well, you, you mentioned the big boy basketball at the start. I saw that as big boy basketball in terms of their high, you know, flying acrobatic moves above the rim. But you have so many little kitty mistakes because <laughs> UConn had nine turnovers in the first six and a half minutes, and they finished with sixteen by halftime. So literally half of the possessions they had in that first half, when they eventually go down forty-two to thirty-four or resulted just shooting themselves in the foot because more than half of Texas's points to that mark were off of their own turnovers. So it was fun in that I think you always knew they had a shot even in the beginning amid those turnovers because Stanley Robinson was engaged. He had eight points and seven rebounds before halftime. There were games, as you remember, you know, again, could jump out of the gym, but you didn't know if he was going to show up for certain stretches. And for a guy who didn't have a particularly you know, strong skill in any area, whether it was ball handling, shooting, defense, or rebounding. He was just so incredibly athletic. He was at least, you know, slightly below average at all of them. You know, for him to show up the way that he did was a big, strong point. And the, the rim protection was still there. Like, say what you want about UConn basketball year to year. They're always going to be up there in blocks, and that was so refreshing to see there. Even guys like, who oh, I'd forgotten, a Terma Juk is getting in there. So Texas had a hard time at the rim. And even as much as they were getting extra possessions from the turnovers, they couldn't convert them into easy buckets just because the rim protection was still there and you were getting a solid game at least early from Stanley Robinson. A terrible joke. I had almost completely forgotten about him, but it's funny to remember, like, that guy was considered to be a real get. 
And uh, I mean, you can kind of see in this game, like his potential. I mean, this is like a six foot 10, 250 pound guy who for all we, we all thought he was going to be an NBA guy. And um, so it's funny when I was going back and doing the research. Um, so the three freshmen who UConn lost, who kind of, you know, caused all their trouble. So Majuk was obviously the most prominent. He, he ends up with averaging 2.3 points and three rebounds a game. And then he leaves for reasons that were never explained. Did, did you know that he's actually still playing professionally to this day, 10 years later? Get out of here. No way. This isn't for like 50 bucks and like, you know, some, I guess not nowadays, but like some neighborhood blacktop somewhere. So Atir Majuk's uh, uh, basketball prof- like career journey is actually really, like, really interesting. So he leaves UConn and he plays pro, uh, he plays some pro ball in Turkey and Australia. And then randomly, and I don't know if you remember this, he gets drafted. He goes number 58 overall in 2011 to the Los Angeles Lakers, which came out of nowhere. And I definitely remember that pick being made. And the guys, you know, the, this is the very, very end of the NBA draft. The guys, the analysts are like, all right, like, let's just get out of here. And when they make that pick, whoever the guy, one of the guys just straight up was like, really? Seriously? Like, that, no one had any idea who he was. And all of UConn Twitter was like, wait a second, what just, what? What happened? So he gets drafted, never plays in the NBA. He has a couple of D-League stints. But then he ends up playing overseas in, and I believe this is the whole list, Slovakia, Korea, Taiwan, Israel, Germany, Poland, China, Lebanon, New Zealand, and uh, most recently, the Basketball Africa League, where he had uh, just signed in like February, and as far as I know, was still playing when the you know all the coronavirus stuff started to go down. So um, yeah, a Termajuk, uh, like a professional basketball player who's and a real serious world traveler. He's like playing on a different team has got to be like twice a year. It's it's incredible that he's still out there just doing his thing. Well, the funny part about him too is I think he was a mid-year enrollee. So here comes this guy who as far as I can recall, was was highly rated in the recruiting rankings. And so he steps in. You think, okay, this team that, again, had lost to Duke, close call with Kentucky, loses to Cincinnati, which is always going to be hard fought. And, of course, these are all in November and December. That should be a real boost to a front court. We've got Alex Oriaki still finding himself as a player. Chuck Laquandu still trying to just find his balance, which he really didn't do until the Final Four the following year. Uh, and it's supposed to give a boost, and he did. But I think everyone quickly realized he might not be the savior kind of in the middle, long and as seemingly talented as he was, because he was finding his footing a lot like the rest of the big Yeah, he was also, it's like, he was a 22-year-old freshman too, so there was a whole element to that. Um, he's good in this game. Uh, five points, uh, six rebounds, and four blocks, and no fouls, and no turnovers. So... I mean, I would have to imagine, like, that's got to be one of the best games at UConn he ever played, because it's definitely the one where he's, like, making big athletic plays, and you're like, damn, like, look at this guy. He can really go. Um, I actually have one more note on Majuk, too. So uh, I mentioned all of his overseas stops. He's actually been involved in two different NBA trades for, like, prominent people who you've heard of. So get this. So Majuk, after he's drafted by the Lakers, he ends up being... his draft rights end up getting traded to the Chicago Bulls in exchange for Jose Calderon and two second round picks. <laughs> Another name I haven't heard of in forever. Yeah, but you've heard of him. Like that's an actual yeah. NBA player and two second round picks in exchange for, you know, a Terramajuk. And then right. the next year, uh, the Bulls trade his rights to the New Orleans Pelicans in exchange for Quincy Pondexter, another second rounder and cash. Hey, cash. Very curious how much that cash was now in, in retrospect. I don't know. I mean, 
to be honest, these deals all sound like salary dumps, but it's still like it's just so random. Like what a what a basketball reference page. Seriously, it's it's pretty crazy. Um, so the other two guys, uh, Jamal Trice uh, and Darius Smith, do not play in this game, and uh, they well pretty much uh, you know they pretty much were barely at UConn. Uh, Darius Smith winds up leading. Uh, he transfers to a junior college, uh, College of Southern Idaho, and uh, he leads the team to a national title. Um, winds up landing at Eastern Illinois, and as far as I know, I don't think he ever played. And uh, Jamal Trice transfers to Appalachian State and kind of just, you know, plays there. Nothing really special, kind of, you know, off the bench type of thing. So I don't know how, I don't, it's weird how any of those guys ended up at UConn in the first place. But this, when I thought of this game and this team, I was like, geez, whatever happened to those guys? Is, like, is that something you've ever wondered? Like the exile from that team? Yeah, some of them. I mean, like I mentioned, Stanley Robinson to me really stood out in the first half. I mean, you kind of wonder what he's been up to. Another guy for me, Gavin Edwards, was a big one too because he had in that first half against Texas two and ones. And it was a lot of these buckets where you could tell they were talented enough to kind of live and thrive in the chaos. And he's getting ahead in transition and just putting these in. Gavin Edwards was kind of weird in the first place just because he – he was almost, I don't want to say hands-off in the paint, but he was much more of a timid big man than you typically had, you know, whether it was Hashim Thabit or we're even talking what, um, you know, other players kind of came into their own. and be, Even Charles Aquando to, to a degree. But he's from Arizona, a little bit more on the timid side, but he gets two and ones to kind of keep them in it, even though they're down 2011. Then they get back to be 2020, thanks to guys that you start to remember. But I don't know what Gavin Edwards is up to. I don't know what Stanley Robinson is doing. You know, we all know Kemba. Even Jerome Dyson, I think, had a cup of coffee in the G League. Um, but, you know, they, they got contributions from a lot of different guys. And, and guys, of course, now you go, I don't know where they are outside of Kemba Walker. Yeah, it's, yeah. Uh, Dyson, I do know for sure, did at least get a one look. In, and he played one NBA game that I know of for sure where he went for like 20 points. But, yeah, he never really got a real shot. Um, yeah, so kind of, you know, in that respect, you know, a lot of really talented guys who never really panned out. And obviously this version of Kemba wasn't like, this is still kind of the prototype version of Kemba where you, you know he's a good player, but he's still, you know, he's not, you know, he hasn't elevated his game to best in the country yet. Yeah, so... Well, the cool thing about Kemba, too, real quick, was just, you know, and the first thing I read about this was a recap on the New York Times of this game, which I really, it was pretty positive the Times didn't send someone up to stores to cover this game, so it might have been an AP story. But a, a quote from there was courtesy of Avery Bradley calling Kemba the fastest guard they had seen to date. And I think that was something, even at the end of his freshman year, when he makes that push, I think in the Sweet 16, the lead eight, to help UConn get into the Final Four... He knew what he was always as a player, and he was going to apply that speed and that energy to help UConn in any way that he could. And I think even when you go into the second half, you know, he's drawing fouls. Texas quickly gets into foul trouble, specifically Bradley and Dexter Pittman. He gets a reverse, and then he gets a three to give UConn its biggest lead to that point, double digits, the first of the game. And that kind of sealed it. And I think you saw that poke its head in and out the first half, but with how many turnovers he had, he just couldn't overcome you know, the deficits he was putting himself into. But at least for Kemba, like, he wasn't the player he became, but he knew what he was in, in the interim and was, was just intent on applying that energy and stress on the defense with his speed as best he could. And eventually, obviously, that panned out. It was definitely a great mental toughness game for him because, you know, he has all those early turnovers. He also is just getting his ass kicked. And every time he drives into the basket, I can think of so many times where he's getting clotheslined or just blasted to the floor. You know, Texas had some pretty big, uh, big dudes in the middle, so... 
for him to kind of bounce back and have the game he did, he ends up with uh, 19 points and 10 rebounds, and I think six steals too. Um, so, you know, the second half especially, he was awesome. And, uh, you know, Dyson had a great game. He had 32 points. Uh, and Stanley Robinson, we're talking, I mean, if let's be real, we're talking about this game mostly because of Stanley Robinson. So want to talk about the uh, the dunk, The uh, since it's kind of one of the, I'm surprised by how early it happened in the game. It's one of the first things, but... What was what do you remember just being in Gamble Pavilion when that thing when you know Dyson throws up that alley oop and Sticks throws it down? Well, I think it just gave you hope right off the bat. I talk about how this game fits in the larger picture of the season that the win provided hope that maybe this team could still be what everyone you know believed and had the, the potential to realize. And, and for me, that dunk kind of was emblematic of that game too because you could tell Stanley Robinson was engaged. And again, he would disappear for long stretches against better teams that he just simply couldn't jump over and that UConn was, was getting carried by the crowd early. So you see that energy manifest in that dunk and Stanley Robinson throwing it down with authority, ready to put his imprint on that game that said, even if Texas, you know, proves for long stretches of this game, it's going to be the better team, which obviously didn't last more than 25, maybe 30 minutes. You know, UConn is going to hang around because of that energy and because it's second or third best player is intent on making sure that his presence is felt. So to get that that early, even as top as the rest of the first half was, aesthetically it was amazing. And then on a more meaningful level, when you're trying to interpret, okay, what does this portender really mean for the rest of the first half? It was an awesome sign because you needed that guy engaged to beat up on Texas. We had a really good player, you know, in Damian James too. He was matching up with frequently as a three kind of four hybrid. Uh, but Stanley Robinson was there. The crowd was too, and to have those kind of converge in that dunk was was amazing. It was nuts. Uh, I I think you know with the benefit of now a decade of kind of hindsight, I, I think it's probably safe to say that play is in the top ten, or if not the top five, of the greatest just you know the craziest individual play in UConn basketball history. Because wow. like. That is that is high 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 praise. Well, I mean, think about it. Like, in ter- I mean, just putting aside like the situation. Obviously, there have been like you know three pointers and clutch situations and baskets and runners that have meant more. But just in terms of just what happened, he had a- Jerome Dyson threw a chest pass from mid court all the way over like at least one or two defenders. Ro- Stanley Robinson had to have jumped like. I mean, he was his his hand was like I don't know, like three or four feet like above the rim practically. It was like a like a like a wide receiver making a like a catch in the end zone. He just grabs it and he just turns and just just dr- throws it right down. I mean, in terms of the athleticism and just like the degree of di- difficulty, that's that is like an insane play. And uh, I mean, I don't know. Can you think? Can you think of any like anything better than that? Like just in terms of just sheer athleticism well, and you know, insanity. Obviously, I, mean, we could, I think we could do a Kemba top five of like just some of the plays that he had made. And you talk about UConn basketball history, there's so much to consider, whether you want to go NCAA tournament shots or steals. You know, but aesthetically, obviously, the dunk was huge. I'd say probably during my time at UConn, you know, as a student from, you know, fall of 09 until the spring of 2013, that certainly fits in there because obviously 2011 brought a ton of good memories. First round exit of the tournament. Um, you know, in the following year and then no tournament at all when I was a senior in 2013. But, you know, it was it was a great sign for the rest of the game for the reason I said it. Great energy. Stanley Robinson was alive. They were still able to get out and transition. And they were shooting well around that too, right? Like all the turnovers were eliminating half of the possessions that they have. But when you have that such high turnover rate of 50% and you're still only down eight at half to the number one team in the country, like all those subtle signs finally came to the surface in the second half 
once I just cut out the turnovers. And and part of that was understanding that Robinson and the energy were there because of that time. Yeah, oh, absolutely. So, yeah, so, I mean, it was definitely, like, the early highlight, but it definitely also was kind of, like, it, it pretty much summed up the first half as a whole because that play came... So, Jerome Dyson gets the ball in his hand because somebody... There was, a, there was like multiple steals on like both sides, like within seconds of each other right before. And then the ball just kind of finds his, the way, its way into his hand. And then, you know, he's like, oh, hey, Stanley's open. I'm going to just chuck it down, down court now and see what happens. Uh, and then like just in the plays after, like the very next play, Majuk just absolutely throws a huge block on a guy. And that was sort of what led into like the, the instant replay of, you know, at, you know the, the student section eye view of Stanley going up for the dunk. And then, yeah, just like next thing you know, it's just like, you know, turnovers and blocks and steals and insanity for the next like five minutes. It was funny to kind of see like Texas or rather UConn didn't exactly get the momentum out of that play because Texas winds up getting like a nine point lead within a couple of minutes of that. And then UConn sort of answers with a big run of their own and then kind of back and forth until eventually Texas goes into halftime up eight. So Weird, kind of a weird half, um, but definitely exciting and very fun for sure. Uh, I wish I could have been there. <laughs> I feel like it would have yeah. been a lot of fun for sure. What, what what do you remember? Just a you know, kind of just in the in the, the student section, your your view of the this game, uh, especially early on. Well, I'll wrap up the first half real quick, just because I think it, it obviously sets the stage for a crazy second. In that you know, as soon as UConn stopped turning the ball over, things went better. But they were also losing some shooters defensively, where you just had Texas who. You know, it was much better from three and the foul line than UConn, as most teams were that year. You know, that they're able to stop some runs by UConn just by hitting some outside shots where they had all, all the space and time in the world. And part of that to me was Jerome Dyson, who, you know, hits a jumper early to put UConn still within range of 14 9. They go down 20 11, more shooters getting loose for Texas, including Avery Bradley, who's obviously still playing in the NBA. Bunch of turnovers, gets tied at 20 20, 23 23. And then again, they just kind of hit this lull, as we all know that offensively, you know, the one knock on UConn throughout the years, lack of ball movement, gets coupled with those turnovers, more shooters lose for Texas, 34-27, and then finally 42-34. So it changed for me in the second half when really you just have this avalanche, as I'm sure we're going to get into, that occurs over barely over three minutes, and then it's a tight game, and then there's another avalanche, is that Jerome Dyson, who was losing those shooters in the, the spurts of the first half, was an animal defensively. And I don't know whether that was Kemba's energy. Of course, we love to credit Kemba for anything now, given what he's gone on to do. But the, the collective energy of the team or the crowd just rising his level of attention in play. But he just clearly gave a bigger shit defensively, which always waned throughout his career. And you see them generating steals. He had one steal and score on his own. He had another tip pass that led to another converted bucket in transition. And that's how you get that 15 nothing run in that three minutes and 19 seconds that I alluded to, that gives UConn its first lead, and that final bucket of that stretch was a dice and dunk or putback from Kemba. So that, to me, was a big part of that. That avalanche is what I remember, just that overall feeling. I think it started defensively. Texas starts to have the turnovers and go, okay, you, they have the same problem that UConn did in the first half. Well, UConn was forcing that issue much more than Texas was in the first half, and, that, and I think it started with Dyson, who we remember for the points, but defensively was was just as good. Oh yeah, absolutely. So uh, yeah, so we're, I think um, kind of the the big uh, the big momentum swing in the second half is obviously the huge UConn run. Um, so just before we d- dive into that, I did want to just talk about the crowd. Uh, the crowd was awesome. And, uh, I really wish I could have been a part of this crowd because, you know, between, you know, the, the dunk and 
the runs and all these other different things that happen. I mean, it's been described to me as the loudest Gamble Pavilion has ever been. So when you were there, what was it like for you just to kind of be like in, in you know, immersed in this hornet's nest, basically? Yeah, honestly, I probably described it to you uh, at the following daily campus meeting on that Monday, <laughs> that Monday night, because that's how I felt that I had a buddy uh, in from high school who went to Central, uh, Central Connecticut State, and came in. And it was electric. I mean, I think you could always say that for UConn crowds where, you know, we weren't going to be the most consistent, loud crowd you might see at other places. But when it's a big game at Gamble, we will will get up with anybody. And that was definitely the case that night. Obviously, I didn't have a great frame of reference uh, or the frame of reference I did when I graduated, you know, there second semester freshman. But it was outstanding. And it was partly because of the dunks. You could see just the momentum build in those two big runs in the second half to get the lead and then put Texas away. Um, just energy plays defensively. And I think that just all came together for absolutely one of the best crowds I've ever been a part of at any sporting event, but definitely the loudest I've heard Gamble, <sighs> aside from maybe a Syracuse game day game my senior year. But even that didn't last too, too long because they ended up losing that one. So, yeah, I think, I think Texas definitely matches up with any, if not standalone as number one. Oh, man, that Syracuse game day game, <laughs> that's a – I've been debating whether or not to do an episode on that because they lost that game, but my that I had a, that was a hell of a time. <laughs> not gonna lie, um, but yeah, this one obviously had the happier ending, and uh, so basically, I think I did the math. And UConn's run, if you really kind of take the totality of it, they went. It was I think it got to be thirty-three to nine between roughly, I don't know. We'll say we'll say about the fifteen-minute mark through you know about maybe with five minutes left in the game. And so the really big run obviously was when they went 15 and 15 to nothing. And that's when they flipped it from being down. Like what would have been, I think six at the time when they were, yeah, they were down by six, five or six. And then, yeah, just kind of, as you described it, you know, Jerome Dyson and, uh, you know, Kemba, you know, a term joke, they all do these, you know, make their big plays. And, uh, you know, UConn finally takes the lead for the first time all game on the, uh, on the Dyson two. And they're off to the races. I mean, you know, Texas scores like, you know, three baskets in the next like five minutes. And by the time they really stabilize things. Yeah, it, it was interesting, too, going back. We talked about the 15 nothing run and how the first half you could see peaks of that defensive energy and that offensive rhythm kind of go through. And even though UConn's down eight, you can see signs of hope. We saw a lot of that early in the second half. And they still go down seven again. But you have an immediate basket off a turnover for Texas coming out of the break. That leads to a timeout from UConn after nine seconds because Texas scores. This was George Blaney pulling a Jim Calhoun. Timeout, 1951. So then Texas gets a couple more quick fouls. Kemba fearlessly goes to the bucket, cuts it down to eight. Then Jerome Dyson, we're going to go from about the 1859 mark down to 1838 here. And within this span, Kemba scores a layup. Dyson then steals the ensuing inbound pass, gives it to Kemba, who pump fakes, gets an and one, and now you have five points in the span of seven seconds. On the ensuing possession, Jerome Dyson makes another steal, takes it all the way back, and throws it down. So it's 44-41. Again, Texas closes back up to seven, so they are about where we were at halftime. But here were some of those steals kind of feeding into, you know, UConn's offense, ability to get out and transition and feel and feed that crowd energy. Um, even if they did fall back down to 50 to 43 and then rip off the 15 to nothing run, which starts with the Dyson layup, a big three from him. Texas misses a couple bunnies at the rim. Again, that rim protection showing up. 
Majuk hits a free throw of all people to tie this thing up, and then you get more shots and more turnovers. So it was it was an avalanche, but it was you could kind of almost feel the tremors underneath it at the start of the half, which I just love seeing that timeout too out of Blaney, who I'm sure just read them the riot act for giving up a turnover and then a bucket in the first nine seconds. But it was it was a small one, and then the two big ones that you know got finished off by Donald Beverly had uh, a steal and a dunk. And then Dyson from Kemba really, really put it away. But, you know, Texas battles back in there, too. People forget it wasn't just that initial avalanche. You know, it's a two, four, five-point game. But when Dexter Portman and Avery Bradley both had four fouls, about seven and a half minutes left to go, UConn's up by eight, a very tentative eight. That's where I think you saw that second avalanche really come in and they put them away for good. Yeah, that second avalanche definitely came in a big way when Kemba has this, uh, has a nice basket and then very next play down he hits a three. And it was like... At three with like two seconds left on the shot clock from like Shabazz Napier range, it was uh, yeah. it was crazy. That then that's when Texas finally calls a timeout. I remember at this thinking at this point, it's like, what the hell is Rick Barnes waiting for? Like your team yeah. is getting blitzed. Like you call a timeout, and then yeah, when Kemba hit the three, it was it was it was over. Like you know the how it honestly felt like Gamble's roof might come down or something. And, and that um, was a three Kemba was not supposed to hit back then too. I mean, he's shooting below thirty percent from three for most of that season. A guy who's again we talked about his speed ball handling and is going to get and attack the rim but he's not stepping out for those threes until really next year without any kind of consistency so you you get this sort of you know the bounces stop going away from you and now come to about average and then you get a big bounce like that to go up from eight to eleven um or whatever it was and you go okay this game should really be in the bag because not only just the size of the lead at this point but the things that have led up to this lead and then of course continue on because texas just as you said just they, they were just choked out at that point yeah, and I think if there was really the Kemba three was probably the dagger, but I think Dyson hits a three a couple of minutes later, and that's like really the dagger because at that point Texas had hit a you know a free throw, they hit a basket, you know Oriaki gets a couple of free throws, so you're thinking okay maybe maybe this is stabilizing, and then when Dyson hit the three, it's like no, this is there's not Texas is not coming back from this one, and uh, you know from that point on, I think it was there may have been about five minutes left. I don't remember exactly, but UConn pretty much just maintains like a 10 13 point lead or so. And um, it's almost actually really funny just how little drama there was down the stretch because you know, after all these you know, back and forth, back and forth, Texas really did kind of feel like they gave up because there, there wasn't much of a push after that. And then you know, just a lot of free throws for both sides, and then finally, you know, it ends and then. I don't know. I guess the students decided to just kind of go for it and storm the court because uh, um, that's you know I don't know. What, what did you think before we kind of get to the court storming? What did you think about the kind of the last ten minutes or so and just UConn really just sort of putting it away? Yeah, it just it just felt like a party, man. I mean, they they were clearly more relaxed out there than the initial five, ten, and even twenty minutes. If you want to argue that the turnovers is a result of some sort of anxiousness but you know they were all playing their best at the same time and I think there's no greater feeling in sports than when you are in sync with your teammates at the highest possible level and that was Jerome Dyson dropping 32 attacking the basket again mentioning his defensive energy getting seals Kemba hitting an outside shot Stanley Robinson throwing down dumps from literally all over Gamble Pavilion and it just feeds into one another so they had that meanwhile again Pittman and Bradley both have four fouls they're not going anywhere they don't have too many players that can kind of create on their own. And UConn defensively, I think it settled into their plan of setting a lot of doubles at Pittman, which they were too slow to get out of in the first half, leaving shooters open. 
But once they understood that, you know, Texas can't afford to take the time to feed the ball into Pittman, who sometimes isn't even on the floor, they have to rely more on their perimeter game. That allowed Beverly and Kemba and Jerome Dyson to kind of feast on the perimeter. So they, they had changed the terms of engagement. They were locked into what they wanted to do. And from that point on, just really enjoying themselves flying around the court, which it wasn't just fun in a relaxed sense, but it was just a joy that they kind of flowed through their game and kind of unlocked a different style of play, a level you just didn't see from that team, really, except for in the second half and in spurts, um, you know, before and then after this game during the season. But it was it was just a joy. It was it was a joy, and it was it was a party. So, what was it like to storm the court? <laughs> um, not bad, not bad. I already said I, I got a fist bump from Clark Kellogg. We were coming from the second level too, so I think we were first or second row, my friend and I. So you have to kind of navigate yourself. But part of that big lead that you have leading up to the storming of the court, like you're not waiting until the buzzer to find out whether or not you get to do this. Like people are starting to organize, which I think makes it a little bit easier. It takes away from some of the spontaneity, obviously, but it, it makes it a little bit safer. And so we get down there, and, and frankly, felt a little weird to me. I remember writing a column later, a couple of years, kind of setting out some rules for storming the court, and this would have violated it. We had just been to a Final Four and obviously won two championships in the previous. Uh, 11, 12 years, but it was it was phenomenal because you never know when you get to do that again. And for a, for a team that had sunk to a level that no one expected, unranked in late January, to be able to come out of that rut, beating the number one team in the country, not only beating them but doing so handedly, uh, was awesome. So again, it was it was a party for the players on the court as I watched them over those last seven, eight, ten minutes, and then for me and basically everyone else within just arms reach, dreams reach. Anywhere inside a gamble who decided to come on down to the court, too. Jeez. So I have to say, so I suppose this is probably the part where I should tell my story of where exactly I was during this game. So at this very moment, when you guys are all partying on the court, I am uh, over with my, my girlfriend, now my wife, um, I, in large part, hopefully because of this decision I made. Uh, so uh, Christina, um, this was her birthday. Uh, her This was game was played on her birthday. And uh, we'd only been dating at that point for about, I guess, like maybe three months. So it hadn't not, it didn't, had not been very long at all. I'd met her family like maybe once or twice before. So, you know, her family was all just like, hey, you know, we're going to have a birthday party for Christina. Um, and they invited me. So I was like, all right, well, you know what? I, I got to be a, the bigger man and I just got to I got to got to go. So I, uh, I had, I had season tickets. I had a ticket to this game and I sold it to, uh, to, to Sam Marshall, actually, of all people, you remember him from the daily campus, right? Yep. Yeah. So it's, we did not know each other yet. We'd never met. And he just, you know, I kind of went to that, uh, Facebook group, like the buyer sell Yukon tickets. So I sold it to him. And then like, I don't know, I guess the next year he like shows up at the daily campus as a copy editor or a page designer or whatever it was that he uh, was doing that year. And it was like, oh yeah, that's right. Didn't didn't I, didn't you buy that ticket from me? Yeah. Hey, what's up? Um, so that was that was kind of a funny little angle. But yeah, so you know, so I go to the party. Um, and the you know they don't really there's not really a TV available at the house either. So you know, just kind of you know hanging out, talking to the cousins and you know her family and all that. And uh, next thing I know, I get a call from Matt McDonough, a regular guest on this show, a former Daily Campus guy. And um, I pick up and it's like, hey, Matt, how'd they do? Did they win? And I just hear, what? Matt, I can't hear you. Matt, Mac, we won. We, you won? We won. That's great. We stormed the court. You stormed the court? 
And I, Christina just looks at me like, oh, God. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I swear, I wish somebody had gotten the picture of my face because I was just like, oh, no. Oh, no. It's the worst possible outcome. They won and they stormed the court and I didn't get to see it. But um, You're a brave man picking that phone call up from Matt McDonough. We all know about 6 p.m. on Saturdays back at UConn. He was at least 6 to 12 deep. So that's uh, <laughs> brave by you. I don't know if that was him just not being able to talk. I'm kidding. I love Matt. Uh, oh, but, damn. Uh, yeah, no, I, I, I'm shocked he got reception, frankly, in Gamble because that's that's a problem when you have you know stands that are half full. But to do that from down on the court or afterward or even leaving Gamble is, uh, is a feat. So, it was a... You know, I, I mean, listen, that was... Uh, perhaps the most joyous game I've ever attended uh, as a fan when I was in college. And I, I still, it sounds like you made the right choice, man. So uh, no regrets. Yeah. Yeah. I suppose so. I mean, you know, we're going to be celebrating our four year wedding anniversary soon. So, you know, I, I got brownie points for that. That's for sure. And Hey, you know what? The, the team wound up not being that good anyway. And uh, the next year I got to cover a national title. So it's all good. <laughs> oh man. So yeah. So anyway, UConn wins the game 88 to 74. And um, so let's kind of talk the aftermath because coming out of this game, we're all thinking, wow, like what a great win. UConn, the sky's the limit. Um, and almost immediately, like it kind of just didn't really work out that way. Uh, UConn winds up losing, I believe, five of their next six games after this. And um, Texas, I think they finished the season seven and eight the rest of the way. So yeah, it was weird. Like just this like, oasis of good times and it's like you watch this game it's like what the hell happened to this team like they were better than that what what happened yeah they were i think they were just missing elements of what made the next team so great because i mean you lose jerome dyson you lose stanley robinson again talking about probably the top two if not two of the top three players on the team and obviously they were much better under Kemba's leadership and i think there were elements of just toughness and togetherness that were missing from that team that you know, revealed themselves at the end of losses to Duke and Kentucky in November, where you go, okay, they had enough talent to hang with, you know, two of the best teams in the country, but couldn't finish it. And then teams like that also don't lose three in a row uh, to two key conference opponents in Pittsburgh and Georgetown, and then on the road to Michigan. So obviously they, they didn't have those elements against Texas, the number one team that was certainly not ranked, you know, in the top five the rest of the year. And they just couldn't do that when they didn't have the crowd behind them or weren't getting the best games from Kemba and Stanley and Jerome all at the same time. But when, you know, you put Kemba in the role that Jerome Dyson had there as kind of the upper class and leader, obviously he was the player that he was on the court, but was able to rally those around him. You know, you saw them eke out those tight games in the Big East tournament, in the NCAA tournament, and even Shabazz Napier, of course, a freshman, hitting key free throws in the Final Four to send them to the national championship. So, so you know, I remember they got a win against Villanova late uh, in that year, which was similar to the Texas win, unexpected. I think Nova was ranked at that time. UConn obviously was not. But, you know, the things that sustain you as a winning team throughout the course of a difficult season, particularly in the old Big East Conference, just weren't there for UConn that year. And obviously they were the next season, and that's why the two were, were so separate and so different. So weird just to think about that whole run, you know, that those three years where you have that season bookending two final four appearances. And, you know, this game was just a perfect example of, you know, they weren't actually that bad, but just, yeah, like you said, whatever that missing ingredient was, it manifested itself in a pretty ugly way. But still, for, for, for 40 minutes on a, you know, random Saturday in January, it was something special. Oh man. Um, so yeah, so Drew just kind of, you know, we've already covered quite a bit here, but is there anything that stood out to you upon rewatch that maybe you didn't kind of realize at first when you first saw this game? 
Honestly, just the uh, just the turnovers. Um, this was uglier at the start. I knew UConn wasn't in control. You know, obviously not start to finish and not the first half. But I was just shocked at you know how careless they were with the ball. And Kemba was you know number one um, you know violator of that. I think he had six in the first half. And part of them were just entry passes that slipped out of you know Oriaki's hands or were a little bit you know to the right from Stanley Robinson who was darting left and just issued there. But you know, I, I think. You just didn't see that defensive commitment for Jerome Dyson all the time. It wasn't there in the first half. I think you saw it in the second. And that made a big difference, not only just as someone who was as talented as he was, but as someone who was looked up to as a senior guard of the rest of the team. So, you know, so much of their success rode with him. Obviously, when he goes off for 32 against a team like Texas, you see the result. But, you know, Stanley Robinson was touch and go, and, and, and Kemba, you know, wasn't developed into the fully formed all-around player he became. So it was just a team that had a thin margin for error. But when they were right, as we saw in the second half, man, it was a ton of fun. They just had to get over their own issues, which were often self-inflicted, as you saw, some defensive you know, misassignments, and then obviously the turnovers. Um, and so it kind of reinforced some things I already knew, but I think it just, I was reminded of the depths of that team in that first half, which, you know, again, sustained itself on some energy and Stanley Robinson showing up in the first half. And once they got that sorted out, you know, they had their, their best win of the year. Yeah, so like I said, this was the first time I actually watched this game, like other than just a couple of the highlights. And I got to say, like, if you just take this, you know, pluck this game out of the context in which it was played. So we ignore the fact that they end up, you know, being terrible down the stretch and you ignore the fact that they, you know, this was just all the other aspects of the season. And it's just like, oh, yeah, so UConn played the number one team in the country and they kind of kicked their ass. And um, it's so much it's a fun game. Like, it's just go back and rewatch it. Like the athleticism the, the 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 pace of play especially early you know you know the the Stanley Robinson you know half court alley oop is obviously the money play but there was a lot of really fun dunks and some other really cool uh, putbacks and some you know just a uh, i'd forgotten just how um how much there was to this game or maybe i i just had never really appreciated it to begin with uh so you know highly yeah, rec- no, I think it's, it's definitely tough it's one of the games you had to feel as much as you saw it, and I was lucky enough to be there so I could feel, you know, every ebb and flow, and obviously, as you can hear, I lost some of that over the last 10 years, but, you know, if you didn't see it firsthand, uh, I, I totally understand why, why you feel that way, but I'm definitely glad you got to watch it start to finish, because, as you said, it, it, it definitely is worth it now, especially, you know, and I don't, I don't think many of us have better things to do <laughs> these days, so... This uh, this worked out in more ways than one. Definitely. Uh, any particular stats you uh you like that from this game that you want to point out? I right, Kemba double doubles always good. Nineteen and ten for him. You know, Jerome Dyson going for thirty two. You don't see many thirty spots. Um, I mean, I, I talked about Gavin Edwards earlier, just kind of being a weirder player who kind of came from Arizona and then you know wasn't particularly aggressive in the paint and still had enough baskets, and, you know, when you see scores like that from him, you go, okay, they're getting enough from the players who need to contribute just a little bit um, and, you know, go from there. Uh, so I, there's not really one in particular, but, you know, I'd probably the, one, the ones I've already said I, I would probably probably go with. Yeah, no, that's that sounds fair. And, you know, Gavin Edwards, too, I, I'm glad you brought him up because he's definitely – Gavin Edwards in general was definitely that guy who always made like four or five really awesome and impactful plays that you remember later. And, uh, you know, just kind of a quiet glue guy who really kind of you a very valuable guy to have on your team. And in this game, he had some great plays like he has a couple of great dunks, some great runners in transition. 
you know, just uh, for a guy who had, you know, like you just described, is a little bit timid. Did, didn't play timid in this game. He he went against some some real big athletes and really showed up. So uh, it was nice to kind of see a, a quality Gavin Edwards game. That's for sure. Yeah, no doubt. All right. So uh, our our game here was broadcast uh, by Vern Lundquist and Clark Kellogg, who you got to fist bump, I guess. Watching this game, uh, the way they described the Stanley Robinson alley oop was really fun. Um, so basically, kind of the the play in the moment was uh, Vern just shouts, "How high can you jump?" After uh, Robinson j- goes up for the the dunk, and then uh, Clark's just like, "However high the ball for him, and he can get it," or something to that effect. And then uh, I think they it was the next play down is when they showed the replay from like the student section point of view, and Clark is just like, "Sticks to the rafters." It's like a, what is it? Who, who's that guy? Like a Bill Raftery type of impression. It was pretty, pretty convincing. Mm-hmm. But that was like sticks to the rafters, though. That's like, that was well, that was like had to have been the headline for like the game after, like at least someone, right? Because that was, uh, I, I remember that phrase. Like we we've heard we heard that like a lot after the fact too. Yeah, I, I you know I was a freshman then, so I definitely would have been too low on the daily campus total poll to make any headlines, but. Uh, it was a good call. I mean, they always do a solid job. I definitely miss Vern, especially on my college football Saturdays. But um, listen, I mean, you could tell that one of the first things they said in this podcast was getting a fist bump from Clark Kellogg, you know, after I swung the court. So I'm, uh, I was always happy to see or listen to those guys. They also had a funny description of the court storming. So when um, it starts to happen a little bit kind of slowly. So the game ends, the players start celebrating. You see the coaches do their like fist bump and handshake line. And then it kind of cuts, and all of a sudden you notice there's like four or five students on the, the the court. And then next thing you know, there's a handful more, and then it kind of st- starts to gain some momentum. So Vern just goes, well, I guess we're going to do a little court storm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it sounds like Vern. Very understated. Just like, okay, this is happening now. Anyway. So, um, yeah, so I guess just to kind of wrap this up, um, who, uh, who uh, was the top dog? Uh, who won the game, do you think? Uh, I gotta be Jerome Dyson. I already talked about his defense so much there in the second half, but you finished with 32 points in a big home game against the number one team in the country, and especially facing, you know, as he did for certain stretches, uh, Avery Bradley, who became you know all NBA defensive team member, you know, later as a pro, um, wasn't quite the scorer as everyone expected in college, but to do that against him in that environment, in that sort of situation, I, I gotta give it to Jerome Dyson. So that's probably objectively a very good pick. I have to give it to Stanley Robinson because he's the reason we're talking about this game. I mean, you know, that was like one of the iconic plays or that stretch of time. And I mean, even like 10 years later, I, I can only think of a handful of other dunks that I, in the you know UConn or, you know, really in most, you know, college basketball in general that I would put up there with that. I mean, you got the James Booknight dunk against South Florida this past year, which was pretty epic. But I mean, other than that, like, UConn hasn't had very many other great dunkers, so to have a game, to just have a moment like that, just kind of encapsulate this, you know, what was otherwise this really great and exciting win and this great experience. I mean, I don't know. I mean, Stanley Robinson is like always going to have a place in UConn lore forever because of the kind of stuff he did, and that was, you know, his best dunk ever. So, you know, I don't know. That's just kind of where, where I stand on that. Yeah, no, definitely a lasting memory. You know, perhaps to play the game and then. That dude could get up. He was he was kind of like Rudy Gay, very light, light in a lot of ways, just in terms of their pure athletic ability, basketball skills largely aside. But he was a ton of fun, man. 
definitely. So, um, so Andrew, before we wrap this up, uh, I just kind of want to kind of uh, move ahead in time to the present day. So uh, UConn basketball is going back to the Big East, and as, as long as this coronavirus thing doesn't screw up the season, uh, this season uh, looking pretty good. Uh, UConn just landed another commit uh, from a, a big 6'9 forward named Adama Sonogo. I hope I pronounced that right, but apparently this kid's like like Jeff Adrian or something, just a, a real load and a real handle, uh, or, or, excuse me, a real handful, and um is rounding out what's looking like a really good recruiting class. So what do you think of this year's team and the, the way things are shaping up? I'm excited. I mean, I think you could see, you know, just the foundation of the program that Dan Hurley wants to, you know, implement has, has already been laid. You know, the way the seniors were able to be sent off a year ago. I was actually at senior night when they beat Houston. And just the way, obviously, book night, everything he brings to the table. I think there's just a sense of everything coming together in timing that obviously you didn't have in a disjointed year one for Hurley. Things were a little bit better last year, but within you know the landscape of the American, there are only so many you know peaks and that you can reach, and certainly a ton more valleys. So now that they've escaped that, and I think can can grow and climb a little bit more as they're kind of ascending as a program, is really exciting. So whether you want to talk about Hurley in your three book night, everything everything that obviously he brings, and some of the freshmen who should be able to step in and contribute probably more than more recent freshman classes. There's just there's every reason for optimism in considering where they've been the last five or six years where you would take one or two reasons just to smile or really look forward to UConn basketball, besides obviously it's UConn basketball, is, is really encouraging. So, you know, for, for thousands of more reasons that we hope that the coronavirus pandemic uh, ends quickly um, or at least, you know, as quickly as possible with everyone is safe at home. But, you know, somewhere deep down that list is the chance to watch, you know, what, it, what should be a, a good college basketball team back in stores uh, this year. It's yeah, I, I, I agree wholeheartedly like you for me. So I don't, maybe you can relate. But like for me these days, like, you know, I grew up watching all the Boston sports teams and you know, they've won a lot. Uh, but like in our in our job, like, you know, we, we both have spent a lot of time in the Patriots locker room over the past couple of years. And just like, you know, it's a little bit different when you're that much in the weeds. But for UConn basketball is like really like the one team that still just gives me that like that joy, you know, just watching them and especially just given what they've been through. And now just to have them like on the the upswing again, it's definitely like this past season, I, I didn't miss a game. And I can't remember the last time I could say that about a UConn basketball team. Like it's probably been since the 2014 team, if we're being honest. So like, you know, just a really exciting and just really if it's really fun to have UConn basketball be like good and relevant again absolutely man so Andrew thanks so much for coming on this has been great so uh if uh people want to read your stuff and they definitely should because you've been absolutely killing it uh where can people find you no thanks man I really appreciate that and uh anytime on twitter at underscore Andrew Callahan Andrew spelled as you'd expect and then C-A-L-L-A-H-A-N all right, good stuff. And of course, you can read Andrew on the Boston Herald. Yeah, so uh, that's it, I guess. Um, yeah, so anyway, thanks so much for listening. Uh, Andrew, thanks again for coming on. Uh, yeah, we'll be back next week. Um, and you guys all know the drill. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Max Cerullo, M-A-C-C-E-R-U-L-L-O. Uh, you know, my DMs are open. You can also shoot me an email at podcast at gmail.com. And uh, yeah, leave some five-star reviews. So... Uh, Yeah, well, anyway, we'll be back next week, and uh, you guys all have a good one. All right, 